The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Hello, welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This is the show for culture makers. We want to help you think about the nature of human beings and what we do and make with the raw materials of creation. And how do those cultural activities reflect our relationship to God, to one another, and to the world? I'm Ryan Aris. With me are Joe Boot and Stephen Martins with the Ezra Institute. This is episode one of season one of the podcast for cultural reformation, and this season is all about culture. Have you ever noticed that people can use that word culture to mean wildly different and diverse things? What do we actually mean by culture? Is culture something that just happens for most of us, uh, or do we have some level of responsibility for what our culture looks like? We're going to get to the bottom of that on this episode by getting back into scripture and into the origins of what's called the cultural mandate. So the, uh, the text that, uh, ref- that refers to what theologians refer to as the cultural mandate is uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 31. And we want to, uh, we want to make sure that we're in line with Scripture, so let's, uh, let's read it out here. And um, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, get, uh, we'll get you, Joe, and, uh, and Stephen to get to, uh, to comment on some of these things. So Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So, Joe, um, Brian, <laughs> thanks for being here. I'm glad, we're, uh, I'm glad we're together. Didn't have anywhere else to be, so. <laughs> well, you usually don't be. <laughs> no, we're we're. I'm glad that uh, glad that we can be together and uh, and talk about some of these things. Joe, what uh, what does this passage mean? You're a pastor. You've uh, you've preached through Genesis. Help us understand this text a little bit. Uh, what did it mean in in the original context where it was written? Well, I think first of all, uh, in the context of the uh, creation narrative, uh, God is reaching the the pinnacle of His work on the sixth day. He's bringing. Um, everything to a completion and there is a significance to the fact that the 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 very good 
crowning work of, of God's creation is the creation of, of uh, man and woman uh, mm-hmm. in his image. So man, in a generic sense, being created by God uh, as God's image bearer uh, to uh, not just reflect the, the character of God, but to reflect the purposes of God for creation. So I think sometimes when we think, when evangelicals tend to think about this idea of being made in God's image and being God's image bearer, we think in terms of, well, okay, which part of me bears the image? Is it my uh, intellectual, eternal soul and so forth? And I think those mm-hmm. are really ideas that are much more uh, in, uh, in line with Greek philosophy than, than with biblical faith and thought. What, the, what I think scripture has in mind here, and, and for that original Hebrew reader, is that uh, man in righteousness and holiness, and then in the task of dominion, is uh, bearing God's image to all creation. He's reflecting the purpose and the will of God uh, for creation, to creation. And man is the pinnacle of creation here, it's more than just the issue of um, a task, as it were. Um, there is there's a certain sense in which creation now is finding its meaning in man. Hmm. That that man is the centre of meaning as well for creation. That everything, uh, just as God, um, in terms of His eternal purposes and sovereign will. Uh, has an overall purpose for the for creation is the is the source of ultimate meaning for creation. Now, in temporal terms, man becomes the focus of meaning for all of creation. So that things, uh, like as a, as light shines through a prism and gives us all these colours, in a certain sense, man's man's heart in relationship to God becomes the prism through which all of creation is now being understood and, in, and interpreted. So there is, um, this accounts for uh, the, you know, I use the word carefully, godlike status of man mm-hmm. uh, in creation, that he's a vicegerent, he's, he's uh, under God, he's a lord uh, within creation. And I think that's how, that's how the early readers of Genesis would have understood this. They wouldn't have been searching yeah, yeah. for some you know, sort of highly abstract intellectual understanding of what, you know, uh, which aspect of me reflects the infinite God. That's not really what uh, the Bible has in mind. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. I never thought of that uh, of the image bearer. I guess it, I guess that is the uh, the original language, to bear, to carry, to present something. Sure, but, uh, yeah. That's neat. I think in, in many respects, you look at how that's conveyed in, in particular regarding the purpose of man, you look at the threefold office, which uh, theologians have been able to infer in their study of this passage in a scripture, uh, and you see how man's called to be God's prophet, God's priest, God's king, in the sense that as prophet he is to essentially uh, think God's thoughts after him. He is to interpret reality after God. He is to interpret reality in a way that is consistent with what God has revealed. Uh, you look in terms of a man as priest, where he is essentially following that interpretation, essentially dedicating, cultivating all of creation unto God as a form of worship and as also unto the service of God. And then you look at God, so man being God's king, and essentially from there, not just dedicating creation, not just interpreting reality after God, but also governing, governing creation subject to God and subject to his law. 
essentially, and that, and that really is, I guess, the purpose and, and the meaning of, of man and being created in the image of God and how that's displayed. Stevie, you just got wicked theological all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, had, he's had his cornflakes yeah. this morning. Oh. <laughs> a bit, bit too much sugar on, I think. Just take it easy on the sugar, there, Steve. But, uh, sort of a brain but, meltdown. Uh, <laughs> uh, avoid the Fruit Loops. Yes. <laughs> Not a sponsor. <laughs> um, we, uh, but that, uh, that, do, that does bring up another another important point that we should talk about like what uh what what does this mean we've you you mentioned what it meant uh for the original reader um what uh, what is the 21st century context and uh what uh how how might this how might this text apply to us today mm-hmm. well uh, i think the theologians have come up with a with a name for this uh, mandate, if you will, to to rule and subdue, mm-hmm. um, to serve God in the service of uh, God's purpose within creation, uh, and that's the the it's often called the cultural mandate, the cultural mandate, and the way that it comes to us uh, here in this passage, of course, is in the context of tending um, and caring for the garden in which God mm. had placed. Uh, man uh, and uh, the human pair um, in that uh, paradisal environment, tending, caring, guarding uh, the garden, and there you have, of course, a picture really of creation as a as a cosmic temple. Mm. You know that the when again, as the early readers would have read this, and I think this is important in terms of interpreting what it means for the twenty first century, is that as the early readers would have read this. The temple, in many respects, the Hebrews' temple, the Jewish temple, was a reflection of Eden. It was uh, there; it was God's throne room there in the holy of holies, and the the garments of the priests with the pomegranates on reflected Eden, and the cherub guarding the ark of the covenant. There's all this Edenic symbolism there in the temple. Right. So as they looked up at the firmament, as it were, the skies and saw the stars in the heavens, it kind of appears like a great dome, and so. There is a, uh, a sense in which here you have Adam and Eve placed in God's cosmic temple of creation. And there they are to worship and to serve. Uh, and that notion, which in this environment here originally was in sort of an agrarian um, gardening type of context, obviously and not all of us are gardeners, um, but the the overall message here, and actually in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, this gets fleshed out because you see uh, that metallurgy and animal husbandry um, and mining and all of these things appear very quickly in the first eleven chapters of Genesis. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, but uh, weren't those weren't those undertaken sort of pre fall and aren't aren't those uh, post fall post fall? So yeah. yeah, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> and weren't they? Uh, weren't they? Aren't they? Kind of given in in uh, the context of what uh, what sinful man had done. So that's a very um, Tolkien thought. There is sort of the the, the the sort of the hobbits were there uh, early in the garden dealing with the flowers, and then later mm. the sinners came with metallurgy and technology. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, I it think self consciously Tolkien. <laughs> I'm well, in good company, I guess. 
Well, the culture is whatever we make with God's creation. So every human being is consciously or unconsciously making culture all of the time. It, it's, it's in the nature of man as God's image bearer, inescapably, mm. in everything that he does mm. to be shaping and forming culture. So no, I don't think that, um, that that's something that's purely being carried out in the context of the fall. I think you see after the flood, the cultural mandate is actually... Uh, restated despite sin and okay. God's yeah. destruction of the of the uh, pre-Diluvian world, to use the correct term, um, and uh, so you you have this requirement of man as God's creature, living in God's creation, to turn God's creation into a God-glorifying culture. Actually, I love what Herman Bavinck says uh, on this uh, about Genesis one twenty-six. He says it teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in His image. Namely, that man should have dominion. If now we can comprehend the force of this subduing under the term of culture, we can say that culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after his image. Uh, Babink with the slam. Yeah, I think that's a slam dunk there from, from, from Babink. And, you know, you fast forward. There's, there's nowhere in scripture that you would then find this commandment rescinded. There's no place where you could turn to and say, oh, look, here's where God abrogates the cultural mandate. Here, here's where God tells us yeah. now this is no longer our calling, no longer central to our nature. Yeah, so it's, it's still in force. It's still in force uh, throughout Jesus' ministry and through the apostolic ministry. It's... Uh, but it's never rescinded. I guess. It's never rescinded. It's absolutely still in force. And and sort of in reference back to what uh, Stephen said, uh, you know, Christ himself is referred to, of course, by the New Testament as the second Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he is the, 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 the true priest king, mm-hmm. true prophet, priest and king, who is uh, the, and the truly obedient son, the truly obedient covenant son, who has now come to fulfill and do what Adam uh, didn't and what the people of Israel called out as God's people uh, were unable to truly fulfill. And uh, Christ in his life and ministry is a walking manifestation of what this mandate is really about. He's healing the sick. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, well, he starts, of course, in carpentry um, and looking after his parents. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then moves into a public uh, teaching and preaching ministry, and he's cleansing the lepers, he's healing the sick, he's raising the dead, he's uh, casting out demons, he's doing the work of the kingdom of God, he's calming the storms, he's turning water to wine, he's manifesting that Psalm 8 kind of dominion mm-hmm. uh, over creation that was given originally given to, to, to man uh, in the garden. So the Great Commission... Um, you know, restates this. I mean, uh, the, right. the Great Commission, in a certain sense, is the New Covenant restatement of what is given here uh, to us in, in Genesis. Of now we're to go into all all authority in heaven and earth belongs to the the last Adam, the Christ. Yeah. Uh, and we in Christ, in the last Adam, as a new people and as a new race, now work and serve in this great cosmic temple of creation the reconciliation of all things to God. And that involves the teaching uh, and uh, serving um, in terms of everything that Christ has, has commanded. So we see that, you know, in scripture, this, this is a, this is a, a, a mandate that you can trace 
through the patriarchs, on through the calling of, of, of God's people Israel, into the ministry of Christ, and then on through the apostolic ministry of the, uh, of, of the New Testament. So on its, uh, at its, maybe at its most basic level, or on, uh, on one level at least, I see, it, uh, I see this, the cultural mandate as, the, uh, as mankind's responsibility to impose order on chaos. Uh, and that's, that's, as you mentioned, Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, Jesus rebuking the storm and the waves. But it's also a, uh, it's, not, it's not just um, imposing order as if you're putting everything in neat little straight lines. It's a, it's a creative process. It's a, it's a building. It's mm-hmm. a, or a building, an act of building, I should say, not a structure. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could say essentially that uh, the very task of Adam and Eve was to bring... Say all... again? You could say essentially that it was Adam and Eve. Um, essentially, they were to bring all of creation under the sway of God's law. And you kind of see that in respect to uh, the very test that was placed in the garden for them, that they were not to eat of the tree of knowledge. And it wasn't just a commandment for that one place and one moment of time, uh, and that was it. It was, in fact, that if Adam can actually live in faithful obedience in respect to this tree, then he could do so to the rest of the trees. He can do so to every other aspect of creation. And I think that, that essentially is central to the cultural mandate, is to bring everything under the sway of God's law, everything subject to God and service to God. Going to, uh, coming back to the this the idea of uh, imposing order on chaos, mm-hmm. um, I probably wouldn't put it quite in those terms. Okay, just yeah. because the the creation order um, and creation is meaning insofar as God has pre-established all of these relationships within creation. So even after the fall, creation isn't quite chaos. But I do. No, that, that's fair. Yeah, and, and 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 when Adam and Eve are sat there in the garden, they're not imposing an, an order on something which is fundamentally chaotic. That would be almost a, a sort of humanistic perspective that you have a chaotic creation out there, mm, and we have yeah, to impose yeah. some kind of order and meaning upon it. Rather, I think that God has established His ordinances within creation. Uh, his law is uh, uh, given to us in a sense when it was republished in scripture, it's there in scripturated for us to, to recognize some of those ordinances and norms. And um, we're to, uh, in a, especially in a, in a world that's now fallen in terms of the direction in which people pursue the task of culture making, mm-hmm. um, we need to bring, our, our task is to bring everything again into harmony with the ordinances of God for creation. Now, part of that ordinance was that man would work and tend, and so I think Eden would have turned into a, a wilderness had it not been tended. Okay. Um, so there was, uh, you know, the, the, the norms for, uh, I should say, the ordinances for um, the growth of plants and flowers and so forth means that unless they are pruned and tended and so forth, right. then, it, then, they, then they become not essentially chaotic, but they certainly revert to a, an unkept, right. Uh, right. Uh, unrestrained state, and creation has been made, because man is central to the meaning of creation, to respond to man's work and service within it. So <clears throat> I think there's two things at work here that are important. 
for us to understand our task as Christians. And that is that on the on, on the one hand, and I think it was really people like Herman Doyeverd who helped us with this, uh, is that the structures of creation, the ordinances, the norms, the, the laws that, that govern uh, uh, creation have not changed with the fall. Um, that those things haven't altered. It's still God's creation, still governed by his laws. Life is still to be lived in terms of God's norms. So the structures remain consistent, but the direction of culture making, the the direction of uh, creation, uh, of of how we pursue the cultural Mm -hmm. task within creation, uh, it has an antithetical character now. So that because culture is about worship, cultus, and it's do it's what we do with God's creation in terms of a particular vision of God and of man and of ourselves. It can be done in an idolatrous direction or in a faithful direction. I think this is what Paul is saying in Romans one. So culture, you said culture is is related to religion. Cultus is that is that the same the same root the same root word there cult. Exactly. Uh, cultivation. Yeah. These, uh... So agriculture. Right. Uh, um, cults, when we think about, you know, uh, that would be the closest connection we still retain to the original usage there, the, the you know, that we would call the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, for example, cults. They're forms of right. religious observance. That's all related to this common root of, of culture. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. culture is always uh, the cultivation of life, not just of plants and uh, crops, but of right. of the totality of life in terms of an overall religious direction. Mm. Um, yeah, well, we mean we don't do it so much anymore, but we used to hear or we used to hear people speak about a cultivated person. Uh, precisely. Yeah. Who we meant so you know so our ideas of good upbringing and refined yeah. manners and that refined tastes. That yeah, I remember my own grandparents talking about it in those terms. Uh, you know, so and so was a, was um, was uh, was a cultured individual, cultured mm. person. It meant that they'd been, you know, exactly exactly well raised, well taught, well trained, mm. um, and that is always being done in terms of scripture, uh, religiously, fundamentally religiously, and that's the direction right. issue in culture. And that's why we have to get away from, and in fact, I think the cultural mandate forces us to get away from this notion that culture can be neutral in any way, mm-hmm. uh, that, right. that any aspect yeah, of what we're yeah. doing is not either an expression of our obedience or in some way an expression of disobedience. And that's the issue of direction uh, within, within culture. There's a, a Spanish yeah. word, actually, um, that is essentially driven from the same cultist, which is culto. And it, it means exactly that in the Spanish language. It's very used. It's used as uh, to mean religious worship or even mm-hmm. religious service specifically. Uh, it's, it's interesting how that's conveyed in the Spanish language as well. Interesting. Same Latin word. I didn't realize that. I don't realize a lot about Spanish, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting uh, insight, though. It's part yeah. of the part of the Indo-European languages, yeah. and seeing uh, how that word has sustained that meaning uh, there is why well, it's. Mm-hmm. it's uh, it affirms what we're trying to say here about the nature of culture. Yeah, absolutely. So that it uh, there's a, a prevailing attitude, especially among some Christians, that that culture, even if it's not articulated this way, 
the uh, the underlying assumption is that culture is is kind of something that something a that just kind of happens to us. Uh, politicians and lawmakers direct culture, and uh, that culture is something that we just kind of participate in or are surrounded by. But to, but from what you've been saying, cult, culture is inevitable, and you've just been talking about. Uh, the direction of that culture, um, but also, uh, also everybody, everybody has some level of responsibility for for making culture. We're all mm-hmm. we are all culture makers. This cultural mandate, I get in Adam would have been uh, uh, given to all of Adam's descendants. Is that mm-hmm. is that fair? Absolutely. So the I think scripturally, as we come back to to that uh, to, to Genesis. Uh, this is a task that's given to mankind. Right. So uh, it's not, you know, a few isolated individuals or a cultural elite or, 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 or even simply a federal head who's given the task of culture making. This is the task that's given to humanity mm. to take uh, the creation that finds actually its ultimate purpose and meaning in God, which is reflected, though, through the man as the center and pinnacle of creation, mm. That, that, that creation itself finds its meaning in man. And this is why Paul is very clear in Romans 8 that the destiny of the created order is tied to the, the character of our redemption. He talks about the fact that creation is groaning, being subject to futility, which is, of course, a reference to fall, to the curse placed on creation. Um, and that was where the, the true character of the fall is the fact that uh, we see immediately that creation begins to resist man's culture-making hmm. uh, uh, calling, and and, right. and so that so that immediately, uh, because of sin, creation begins to offer resistance to the task that man has been given. That doesn't mean we're excused yes. from it. It just means right. that thorns right. and thistles and pain in childbirth. So yeah. part of culture is having yeah. family and children and. Uh, and and everything from your gardening to to your to your uh, your your medical medical care to whatever your vocation may be mm-hmm. uh, is an aspect of an expression of culture, um, and it offers now creation offers resistance, you know, to to the mandate that we've been given in God. But it's clearly a mandate that's given mm. uh, to every single every single one of us. Right, right, and um, I think. The, the fact of the entrance of sin into all of this means that it's the, it's fundamentally the direction of what we're doing uh, culturally um, that is affected. None of us uh, none of us can uh, can sit back and say I'm not a part of the cultural task. And <clears throat> nor are we saying here either that we all self consciously sit down with chisel in hand to manufacture culture every day, we are being shaped by the culture as well as shaping the culture. Yeah. So yeah. it's a communal thing, and, and religion is always a communal thing. So some, some religious vision of culture is always being conveyed in any social environment, in any um, sociological context, in any social order. So, you know, this whole idea of passivity that you're talking about, of Christians sort of saying, oh, look at the terrible culture we're in. Right. Um, right. Well, yes, we are being impacted and shaped by culture around us. And so we talk about sometimes being countercultural, which simply means 
the direction in which we are seeking in obedience to God to shape creation uh, and everything that goes on in life within creation in terms of a direction of obedience and faithfulness finds itself in conflict sometimes with the cultural uh, uh, powers, the cultural forces that are around us. So we are shaping, but we're also being shaped by the culture. And that's why that, this, this awareness of what's happening around us culturally is so important for the Christian. Mm. Yeah, right. It's interesting that the cultural mandate that we've read in uh, Genesis 1 was given before the fall. Um, and it's, uh, it's included, and maybe, maybe it, uh, it makes up the balance of the work that we're called to do, not just not just our plowing and our sowing and our childbirth, but our, uh, our task of building godly culture, of exercising dominion. That's also, as you say, uh, creation's resistant to that now. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess the, uh, a, a building a godly culture is, a, uh, is something that, uh, that would, have, would have had to happen uh, regardless of the fall. That's, uh, this is what uh, what we were made for. Precisely. I, I, that's an important insight. This is not uh, the, the fact that creation now offers resistance um, uh, doesn't negate the fact that had, you know, hypothetically had man not fallen, mm. the mandate to shape creation in terms of obedience and faithfulness to God would have still been there. Right. And what's important to recognize in the gospel um, and this, of course, speaks to the whole issue of the scope of the gospel and the, and the, and the glory of the gospel and the, the all-inclusive character of the gospel in terms of what it touches, what it impacts, is that the second Adam, Christ, in reconciling us to God, reconciles us to our calling in God. It's, it's that we are brought back to faithfulness mm. to the cultural task rather than moving in an idolatrous direction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, we live and serve in the context of creation in terms of obedience. So Christ, the last Adam, restores us to this mandate that was given to Adam. And of course, that's what Christ is doing. And when he's healing the sick, when he's raising the dead, when he's casting out demons, he is redirecting, he's restoring, redirecting the creation in terms of God's ordinances. God's purpose, mm-hmm. God's norms, God's right. law for creation. And of course, Christ is our pattern, the imitators of Christ. Uh, yeah. We are um, uh, being uh, conformed to the image of his son, says Paul. So our very lives are being shaped to look like the, the last Adam, the, the Christ, the, 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 uh, the truly obedient son of God, mm-hmm. We are now to look like him in his task of the restoration and reconciliation of all things to the Father. And that, that is the totality of creation, because what's happened with sin is that man is not only himself alienated from God in his personal relationship, and we evangelicals are good at talking about our personal alienation from God because of sin, but man, because of sin, has sought to alienate creation itself from God. He seeks to alienate the products of his cultural life, of what he's doing with God's creation from God as well. And so what happens in our restoration to God through Christ is that in that process of reconciliation, it's not just my personal sins that are being forgiven and dealt with, mm-hmm. but actually my work, my, my life in the world, everything about me now 
as a believer, in principle, is being restored to right relationship with God so that I no longer seek to alienate God's creation and the cultural products of that we, we, we make with creation. And that is, of course, the conflict that's basic to the Christian life in, in, in contrast to uh, the attempts of man to alienate God's creation from him in the, in the, un, in the, in the unbeliever. Right, right. So for, uh, for, for our listeners um, who, uh, who don't do this day in, day out, um, for, for those, those of us who are pumping gas, bringing kids to soccer practice, um, working at uh, their jobs, they're not, they're not necessarily going to do anything different um, to the outside eye. Like, they're still going to carry on with mm-hmm. those with those cultural activities, those structures that you've been talking about right. are not not materially different than than the non-believer mm-hmm. pumping their gas. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's uh, what's the what is the difference? How do we uh, how do we understand mm-hmm. our our cultural task in the day to day? Well, I think uh, one sort of memorable expression here is that we're not doing different things to the non-believer we're doing the same things differently okay right yeah. so yeah uh it's yeah, not that's exactly the kind of the kind of thing i had in mind yes we 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 we're not it's not that uh, we don't take it's not that we don't take our kids to soccer practice as well it's not that uh, we don't create music or mm-hmm. do fine art or or um, try and balance our books and so forth we're doing the same things but there's a different orientation to what we're doing and i think Obviously, you can detect those differences more clearly, more obviously in some areas than mm. you can in others. Right. So, you know, there's the uh, perhaps it might be harder to detect the difference that, 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 that you might be uh, directionally, culturally in what one mathematician is doing over here and the Christian mathematician is doing here. We're, we're working with the same numbers and concepts very often, but right. actually what undergirds what we're doing and the, the, the ideas and the religious motivation that underpin what we're doing is very different. To take a very, I think, scriptural example, Paul's expectation in something as rudimentary as marriage mm-hmm. is that the believer's family life and marriage is going to be radically transformed by the gospel. Yeah. Uh, you know, non-believers get married. Um, my Muslim neighbor uh, is married. Yeah. Uh, there are lots of secular people today getting married, and in fact, there are even we even have the 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 uh, oxymoron of, of homosexual marriage, mm-hmm. which isn't marriage, but we have that's what it's called. And the legal agreements, the contracts that are drawn up, look very very similar, if not identical. Sure. And yet, Paul recognizes that the character and orientation of a Christian marriage is totally different. So, what does he say? Mm-hmm. He teaches us that. Um, we, uh, in our relationship with one another, we serve one another as unto Christ, as unto the Lord. Uh, everything that Paul says actually about marriage in terms of what he expects of the wife, what he expects of the husband, what he expects of children, is now directed toward Christ. Now, I don't think anything could be more basic to most people's lives than the life of their family. Sure. Whether yeah. they're a child or a, a husband or a wife or grandparent or whatever the wife of the family the life of the family is basic to all of our lives 
And Paul says something in, 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 a, in a seemingly ordinary as the marriage relationship. Look at Paul's teaching on marriage of how the gospel, how the orientation toward Christ is to affect this fundamental social unit, which perhaps is the most influential uh, institution in terms of shaping culture that there is, the marriage, the family relationship. And Paul expects huh. that the gospel will radically alter how we interact with one another, um, why we do what we do, how we serve each other as unto the Lord into the marriage relationship. So there is, a, I think, a, a fundamental, um, basic example yeah, yeah. of how the gospel, um, you know, the cultural mandate, uh, reshapes something that mundane, or at least I should say something that ordinary. Yeah. But Paul yeah. says, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, in other words, even in the most mundane, ordinary things of life, do it all for the glory of God. Right. So the Christian is being fundamentally reoriented towards service to Christ, seeking God's glory, which involves obedience to God, God's norms, God's laws. And as we begin to take those seriously and look at what God requires of us in Scripture, we can begin to see very clearly, OK, well, what does that mean for business? What does that mean for medicine? What does that mean for art? What does it mean for painting, for fine arts? What does it mean for music? I mean, you can detect the difference uh, of worldview uh, even between a, a da Vinci and a Rembrandt uh, in terms of one having a sort of hybrid uh, Greek slash Christian worldview, the other having a robustly mm -hmm. reformed uh, worldview. You can detect the difference in the music of a Mendelssohn and a John Cage, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of how that musical direction, they're using the same notes, but how that reflects a completely different outlook on life and what you're trying to accomplish mm. with the music, yeah. and that reflects a Christian understanding. I mean, whether you cook the books as an accountant for a business or whether you are, are faithful in your bookkeeping, mm -hmm. whether there's an, an amount set aside by a business for God mm -hmm. as the first fruits, um, it's directed towards God's kingdom purposes. In, in some of these most basic and simple ways, we begin to see how radically shaped every area of our life will be by the truth of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, certainly if you look at political life, um, educational life, legislation, um, those are some of the areas where the differences are very obvious. Yeah. You know, ideas sure. about human sexuality, ideas about marriage, mm. uh, ideas about how um, children should be instructed. The, the sort of the philosophical and religious direction of those things is much easier, much more obvious to mm. detect. Mm. But I think um, probably what you're driving at, Ryan, is, you know, some of the sort of um, throwaway lines of the two kingdoms advocates, for example, would be, you know, there's no such thing as a Christian way to change a diaper or there's no such thing as Christian stir fry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not driving at them. They're in my mind. Yeah. Much, but, uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, you know, those sorts of, uh, they, they, they sound compelling initially because, you know, the, on the surface, somebody thinks, well, mm -hmm. yeah, what is the difference between a Christian doing a stir fry and a, and a non-Christian doing one? Yeah. Um, but yeah. actually, when you barrow down to that a little bit deeper and you say, okay, well, think about, let's just think about food for a minute. Right. Uh, the preparation of food. Um, the type, there, there sure is a Jewish way to do there it. There is a very, fry. very, absolutely there is. Uh, in fact, I think that uh, inadvertently there, they've stumbled on a really poor example. <laughs> because, you know, if you look at Islamic yeah. food uh, laws, halal food, totally. uh, yeah. kosher laws, 
Uh, most of the, the West adopted uh, uh, Jewish slaughter laws, um, uh, essentially biblical laws with respect to slaughter. Um, you look at um, cleanliness issues, or you look at something as stark as what human beings in a state of real apostasy from God thought acceptable to eat. I mean, even Charles Darwin himself, when he was reflecting on uh, his um, uh, tour of the Pacific Islands, yeah, that's right. Uh, was thanking God for the, uh, or at least was, uh, yeah, uh, reminding his fellow travelers and um, mm. explorers that you should be grateful for the work of a Christian missionary because if you wash up on one of these islands that hasn't been exposed to the gospel, you may end up in a stir fry. <laughs> so, you, you actually, when you look at these things more deeply rather than just on a very surface level, you, you mm. begin to see how actually issues of food, issues of clothing, the same things that seem to be the most religiously neutral, as it were, in, in, in mm. a, from a, from a uh, surface perspective, are actually uh, rooted that what we think as normal today in, in Western cultural life in many areas is actually the fruit of centuries of evangelization, the fruit of people learning the gospel, learning God's law, discovering God's norms, discovering God's laws and ordinances for creation. Yeah, that's that's a good a good summary and a good uh, a good way a good place to close this uh, this main por- portion of our uh, of our talk today. Um, but uh, what, what about some further reading before we go? Maybe somebody somebody wants to find a book on uh, on some of these things. Do you guys do you guys have have some recommendations? Joe, you've got like five books there. <laughs> yeah, just thought sort of a potpourri. <laughs> yeah. of, uh, <laughs> I could probably sort of a selection yeah. that. Uh, yeah, if anybody wanted to buy a, a gift basket, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, a little, little gift basket and, uh, on culture. <laughs> also Andrew Sandlin's introduction to Christian culture, which personally I found uh, first be exposed to the very concept of a Christian culture or culture being religious in general. I thought it was a great Oh uh, yeah, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he's one of our fellows, so we're happy to recommend that. Sure. Um, I think um, um, there's a couple of good places I think people could start. There's um, Creation Regained, which is uh, Albert Walters' uh, little book, W-O-L-T-E-R-S, Biblical Basics for Reformation or Worldview. And I think that's a very, very helpful, especially in regard to the whole idea of structure and direction and how right. the direction of culture uh, is governed um, religiously. Yeah, okay. Uh, helps helps our, uh, see our way through some of those thorny questions. And then um, uh, Vern Poitras' uh, a little book, The Lordship oh, nice. of Christ, Serving Our Saviour All of the Time, in All of Life, with All of Our Highs. A very simple a very readable, nice little introduction to what the Lordship of Christ really means, politics, science, work. Um, and then he looks at some of the, the traps, though, that we can we can fall into in all of that. If you're looking something for a bit more theologically meaty that's sort of the, mm-hmm. dealing with this whole idea of uh, office-bearing, kingship, and so forth, then um, Her- Herman Ritterboss's uh, The Coming of the Kingdom with PNR Publishing is a, is a classic. We're just going for the record of how many Hermans we can fit into one. We are. We, one we, episode. How many is that? <laughs> three. Two or three, is it? <laughs> uh, this is this is a, this a that's a great book. And then Robin Kondoyaward and now Ritterboss. Uh, those who might be interested in um, art and, and literature, more in that sort of end of the, because of course arty people have their own sort of corner of creation. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, if you're interested in in thinking about um, a Christian way of approaching art and literature. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely little book 
Um, not, an e- not the easiest read, but it's a great little book by Calvin Seerveld, uh, A Christian Critique of Art and Literature, which I would recommend to listeners as well. Would you recommend awesome. anything by uh, Francis Schaeffer by chance? Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, well, actually, mine are, I have the full works of Francis Schaeffer. I think dipping into Schaeffer almost anywhere. He does some very good, he, he wrote a very interesting little booklet on, on Christian art as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which uh, you can definitely find in his works. I think um, it's just called On Christian Art, I think it? it is just called On Christian Art, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. nice little booklet. It's just a little book, and I think that, that that's a great place to start. But Schaefer, Schaefer, in general, is a good place to reflect on, right. um, on on this particular issue. Genesis in Space and Time, where he begins to look at the implications of, mm. of, uh, of, of the book of Genesis um, uh, for the Christian life is a, is, is, a, is a great little book. Yeah, those are some great recommendations. Uh, I also might just add, uh, by way of introduction, and I think Joe, you had, you gave me this book some years ago, probably. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, a little book by uh, David Hegeman. Uh, oh yes, I think that's. I'm oh yeah, sure. you just say it, I, Hegeman. You just say it quickly and move on. But uh, I think it's called Plowing in Hope, or it's, it's called Plowing in, Hope. Plowing in Hope. Plowing in Hope. Yes. Something like reclaiming a biblical understanding of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a small book, but uh, he talks about uh, plowing and building and the uh, the creative element of culture and yes. that, uh, and a lot of what uh, what we've gone over today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just a fantastic introduction. That's and an excellent little book, really well and very clearly. Yeah, very readable. And one other has just occurred to me that on the introductory level would be um, one of our, our fellows, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Ventrella, oh, yeah. in that excellent little book, um, Cathedral Builders. Oh, that's right. Which is a, a sort of very readable um, introduction to this whole notion that, that we as God's people, we're, you, know, you get it, of course, from the title there. We're building this mm. cathedral. Um, we're seeking to live to God's glory. We're looking to apply the truth of the gospel to each area of life. That's Jeffrey Ventrella, Cathedral Builders. That's great. Well, Joe and Stephen, uh, thank you for uh, being with us today. I'm Ryan Harris. Joe Boot and Stephen Martins have been with me today, and we've been talking about the cultural mandate. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. For more Ezra Institute resources, visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.